0: Empathetic. Emp, em, is that right? Empathic. Empathic.
1: Em, uh, empa- no. Empathic and empathetic, I think, are different words. Oh, okay. Empathetic is the one you're going for. Welcome back to, to Sweden.
0: Thank you. Big thanks to Temma for filling in last episode with a, an excellent, uh, excellent show. I enjoyed it very much, especially the start, which I listened to about. Fifteen times because it was hilarious <laughs> I think I, I commented to you that one very peculiar thing that I noticed was that it, it was kind of like listening to you talk to yourself right <laughs> I think obviously because you guys have you know
1: you how long have you known each other we've well I, I worked it out because we were talking we met when we were eleven and I'm now 33 so literally two thirds of our lives
0: yeah. It kind of shows like you, you <laughs> it, uh, the way that you talk is very, very, uh, not that, not the pronunciation, but just sort of the manner of speaking is very similar mm. and clearly, clearly the sense of humor as well. So, um, yeah, it was interesting.
1: Uh, was it a bit weird to be listening to somebody else sort of in your position as it were?
0: Or- <laughs> no, it wasn't, wasn't weird, but it, it did sort of give me a nice simulation of what it is like to be a listener of station 13 oh. and it was a good feeling.
1: <laughs> Good. Uh, I have a little bit of follow up from that episode. Yeah. Uh, just on a, a couple of the topics, the Evergreen Vim topic, which I promised I'd never talk about. Evergreen. This is the third episode in a row. Evergreen. <laughs> I mentioned that I'd made a blog post about viewing Git graphs in Vim. I posted that on the Vim subreddit, and somebody pointed me to gv.vim, which is a plugin that does more or less the same thing as as my blog post was doing, mm. but in a much more sort of nice, usable way. So that's better. So if you went and jumped on my blog post last week and did that, delete all that and install this plugin instead. (laughs) I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay. (laughs) And then at the end of last episode, we did say we were going to begin a game of Correspondence Go, Mm -hmm. Tamara and I, and we did. So that game has been going on since then. Excellent. And uh, obviously he's wiping the floor with me, but it's been enjoyable. Great. As well as that... I actually took in my go board to work and I set it up on like a free table in the middle of the hallway hmm. and just laid a single stone down on there and then went home <laughs> and when I went back in somebody had laid a stone in response oh wow and it wasn't it wasn't like in a, you know it wasn't a randomly placed thing it was clearly somebody who at, at the very least knows sort of the rules and a vague idea about house play go wow uh, so then i i went and laid another stone and went and got a coffee and and when i got back another stone had been placed <laughs> been going back and forth like this for a couple of days now i think we're about eight or nine moves in so you work in an office with a quite a large number of people i believe but do you know who it is no well okay so i didn't know who it was for the first six moves then because this where I left it is not that far from where my desk is, so mm. uh, I can see it. So finally, on like the seventh move, I actually saw him go and place a stone. So I have seen who it is now, but I don't know them. I've never met. Ah, oh,
0: okay. Does does he know? Okay, so you never met. So he probably doesn't know that it's you on the other end.
1: Probably not. Ah that's great unless i also I, I was looking around i found a mailing list uh for people who are into board games and that so i did send an email around asking if anybody's interested in go and so if he's on that mailing list then maybe maybe he could guess that it was me but mm. yes it's it's quite interesting we're sort of having this uh vaguely maybe two or three moves a day correspondence game going on <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's fantastic what a great idea that's a uh- it's a really it must be kind of exciting to sort of creep out there and say
1: oh there's another new move yeah yeah it's it's really fun and then a couple of moves ago turned out i made what i now think was a bad move because the move that he responded with i immediately realized was the move i should have made the previous turn mm. and it was right at the end of the day so rather than reply straight away i went home and i've been keeping track of the game on the uh, smart go Kifu app which i mentioned on the last episode mm. and the cool thing about this app is it's it allows you to explore alternatives and it'll build out like a tree of moves oh wow so i started with the current position of the board and i just went and played through a few different ideas of where i might play and how he might respond and the next morning when i went in i had this whole sort of tree of different <laughs> different alternatives that i'd explored and i could go and Look through them all and then decide which one to play. So it's good fun. That's interesting. Wouldn't that be sort
0: of like a form of cheating? Because just hold on, wait a minute. Before you say no, just hear me out. <laughs> <laughs> because like one of the challenges of board games, especially strategic board games such as Go, mm-hmm. and, and of course like chess is the ability to play through those kinds of alternatives in your mind and sort of follow them through and sort of think, okay, if he he does that, then this, if he does that, then this, and if he does that, then this. And then, of course, to keep those various pathways in your mind as you're actually playing, especially if you're sitting across the table from from your opponent. Right. To have those things in your mind and to sort of basically work through them quickly so that you don't take too long in making your move in predicting what they're going to do and then what you should do next and all that kind of stuff. Right.
1: So, and w- w- you know, when you see the same shapes a lot, patterns begin to form and you can start to skip some of those sort exactly. of manual.
0: So, I mean, one of the reasons that I really, really, really suck at board games mm-hmm. is because I have a very poor ability to do that. Mm. I can't really sort of, you know, I can think one, one line of thought in my mind, like, okay, if my opponent does this, then I'll do that and then that will ha- cause this, which will do that. Mm. But multiple ones okay well okay maybe they won't do that but if my opponent does this then i'll do that then i'll do this like I, by that stage i've already forgotten what my first right <laughs> my first right, strategy right. Exactly. was in my mind yeah so bearing in mind then that that ability to predict outcomes and to make judgments based on sort of these predictions and assumptions about what your opponent's going to do if that is a if that is an important skill for playing a board game well, Mm -hmm. and you have an app that does that for you... Well, that helps you to do that. Sort of. Yeah.
1: Right. Isn't that kind of cheating? Uh, So I would say that Correspondence Go and Correspondence Chess and and the Correspondence version of all these games is a different game to sitting together and playing it. Mm. The rules are the same, but I think... I think that's a totally reasonable thing to do in a correspondence game. I think that is that is the thing that correspondence play affords you, is mm. time to to go through that process and do it slowly. Yeah, that's true. And the reason why I think it's quite a good thing is because this is how you exercise those muscles so that you can become good at doing it mm. in real time when you're playing a real game. Right, I see. Yeah, that, that's, that makes sense. Like if you were playing a
0: correspondence chess like the old days where you send postcards to each other where it says like, I don't know, Right. it was like B3 to seven, four queen takes, whatever, you know.
1: Right. And the, the expectation would be that both players have a board set up and they're they're trying out different things before they yeah. decide their move. And so I respond.
0: guess in that case, there's nothing stopping either player from having a notebook and just writing down those alternatives, which is the same thing that your app is doing for you, right? Exactly, yeah. Right.
1: Uh, it just makes it a bit easier. So I think it's completely reasonable. I don't think my opponent is doing it. mm so in that sense, perhaps I have an unfair advantage. But, you know, this is just for a bit of fun. Mm. And I think by doing it, perhaps I'll get an advantage over him. Maybe that's not fair, but that's not why I'm doing it. Mm. The, the reason I'm doing it is because I want to improve at the game myself. And by actually going through this process and thinking through all these alternatives and trying to find the best one, I am exercising those muscles and i am giving myself that practice right fair enough so how was boston did you we actually got a a tweet from friend of the show and host of two bit geeks tom Hmm. who was saying that he was keen to hear all about your experiences in boston because he's from boston originally and he'd been seeing all your tweets showing all the architecture and, all right. <laughs> and and all of that. And he was, he was very happy to see all that. So he was interested to, to hear about your impressions of Boston. Okay. Well, it was very good. This is actually the second time that I've been to Boston. Mm.
0: And I would freely admit the first time I went to Boston, which was in 2006, I think, or 2007. So roughly 10 years ago. I will freely admit I didn't really take to it that much often when you visit a place for a very short amount of time, you know, a week or a few days, mm-hmm. your impression of it is going to be sort of uh, unfairly shaped around single encounters with certain people or the weather or, right. you know, things that you don't really have any control of. You know, you could be raining the whole time and you could just happen to meet some particularly grouchy people and then right. all of a sudden you think that entire city and everything in it just is horrible (laughs) so my first experience in Boston wasn't that bad but I just didn't really feel there was much there that was appealing somehow you know I just I I guess the people were the first time around a, a little bit I don't know standoffish no one was felt particularly friendly or warm or that I could identify with and it was kind of cloudy the whole time and the architecture was yeah okay you know nothing really sort of stood out to me that much so that was ten years ago. Mm. This time, there's a few things that are different. Number one, well, number one, I was there by myself, so I kind of when I wasn't uh, engaged in my uh, work responsibilities, I sort of had the freedom to wander around and to look at things myself, and just to take my time to do things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. S- second thing is the location that I was in, I was in was very different. I was staying in a hotel in the financial district, which is a little bit of a walk from the Boston Chinatown, mm. and. Basically walking through an area called the Seaport District Hmm. uh, every day to get to the convention center where the event was that I went to attend. And the Seaport District is very new. So basically I think it's been – when I went there 10 years ago, it probably was completely under construction. It was a a large-scale sort of urban improvement program called the Big Dig Hmm. in Boston – which has been happening over the, those ten years, and uh, so this time, the areas where I was spending most of my time during the week that I was there were very, very new, very sort of clean and, and modern and recently built. All right. The people I dealt with this time, interestingly, the first the first time you know people well, it was a very short trip, so I was really just dealing with restaurant people or shop people. Mm-hmm. The first time I went there, this time uh, I was uh, exhibiting the game that we've been making which i'll talk about later mm-hmm. at an event that was uh run by uh, oculus and uh the uh, people the, the local people that i was sort of with the whole time were basically local people who were there uh hired to be assistants at the different booth booths that were around the area where we was playing the game mm-hmm. so as a result they were you know young people uh, with various interesting backgrounds, uh, mostly from the local area, from Boston. And as we're standing up the whole time at the event, mm-hmm. it's a kind of an interesting bonding experience because everybody's legs are kind of getting <laughs> tired. I mean, these these people are professionals because this is what they get paid to do, sure. stand up at booths and to help people um, play the games. But um, yeah, for me, just to, to sort of have basically two days standing up from 9am until about 6pm all day mm-hmm. with the same group of people from Boston that's a pretty pretty great way to you know experience the local color and the local character <laughs> and um yeah so uh various recommendations from those people uh during the the time that I had you know walking around to various different places that I wouldn't have normally gone mm-hmm. uh enjoying some of the food in Chinatown which was nice just sort of different things like that. It was really enjoyable. And I found that Boston people are uh, almost refreshingly candid. <laughs> you know, they're very yes. they're very direct.
1: I've I've sort of found that as well. I've got a few friends and coworkers from Boston and I found simultaneously that they are very sort of honest and candid and, and direct. In a way that is is especially refreshing now that I live in California. Mm. Where, that's where everybody... For, for those
0: uh, listeners who aren't familiar with the uh, United States domestic uh, kind of character, I think the, the East Coast people always complain about the West Coast people being, quote, fake. Right. So that's what you mean by that.
1: Yes, obviously an English person coming from Japan and then to California. I'm kind of used to being polite to each other but um, but but the 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 thing is these friends of mine from Boston they they are all direct and honest but they're also all really nice and very polite mm. like unusually
0: good manners in right. my experience yeah that that is interesting i noticed that too mm-hmm. i'd also noticed that in new york when i visited new york mm-hmm. many years ago but the sort of good manners good etiquette mm-hmm. being polite to people being considerate and maybe not so much friendly but just very polite and very yeah just good good manners basically right i felt that very strongly this time in boston as well the accent in boston is very unique in in the united states and uh very very familiar because uh so the australian accent we say for example car and park and yard right you know <laughs> i think most most listeners who uh American can probably see where I'm going with that. But there's a famous, a famous thing that people always imitate people from Boston saying, which is you park mm-hmm. your car in Harvard Yard. Right. Which, which sounds almost identical to the way we would say it in Australia, park your car in Harvard Yard.
1: Right, right, right.
0: So hearing that accent around me was, was really kind of familiar. And, uh, I, you know, I think I, um, there's a few local people that were booth attendants who said, oh, Alex, I love your accent. I could listen to you talk all day. Mm. All right. Okay, that's the first time anybody's ever complimented <laughs> me on my accent because I think uh, I mentioned before that I think the Australian accent is sort of one of the more clumsy, sort of more or less useless accents in the uh, in the spectrum of English pronunciation. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the people were very good. Um, I didn't. Mm. The, the food was okay. Not not super fantastic. Uh, the Chinatown food was very good, depending on where I went. I once again was completely. Completely perplexed by the whole culture of tipping, oh, which we've talked about yes. before. Nightmare. Where you just where, yeah, just like uh, like some of these shops are so modernised that you go in to pay with your credit card and you're doing it on an iPad, mm-hmm. which is run by um, it was like Square or Toast or one of these kinds of apps yep. that takes care of that, and it's like a button there for you, like choose your tip amount: twenty five percent, twenty percent, fifteen percent. Right, and and it's like, well, when we get to this stage. Why not just charge a little bit more and give everybody more more salary? But anyway, well, yes. I'm sure I know I know there's reasons.
1: I mean, I, th- I think the key is that you can choose your tip amount, right? I, you, I, yes, the options presented to you are typically 15, 20, and twenty-five, right. or
0: no tip. But wouldn't you rather have somebody be nice to you in a shop because they care about you and they are proud of what they're doing, rather than because they want more money from you? Oh, that's. I think we've talked about tipping before, and I think I mentioned that before, so we won't, we won't go into yes. that. But <laughs> anyway, what else? So the uh, architecture, yeah, interesting. Some of the the buildings in the financial district are uh, it, sort of bizarrely diverse. You've got mm-hmm. old buildings from the fifties, sixties, seventies, and then you've got these weird-looking kind of shiny, shiny glass things from the eighties, mm. and you've got really modern modern buildings uh from you know the 90s and beyond and they're all kind of mashed together in this weird kind of um what's what's the opposite of geometric -geometric? non-geometric a-geometric anti-geometric I don't know how
1: you can be non-geometric I mean if geometry is shape what is what is non-geometry I guess amorphism I suppose (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're right um that's a
0: good point uh I guess they they basically look just sort of randomly placed down at any angle at any kind of shape, just sort of plopped right. down uh, on these sort of unusual shaped blocks mm. so when you stand below them looking at them from a distance it it looks really weird it's like this sort of this sort of this clump of buildings just sort of sprouting out like a like a like a clump of grass growing out of a you know growing out of the holes between the bricks or something you know it's just it's very very mm. very surreal uh actually one of the one of the tweets that I made twice mm. seemed it was that uh, a lot of the architecture there seemed like my own amateur attempts at 3D modeling <laughs> because it just like these primitive cubes and shapes just sort of dropped in on top of each other to make this sort of very simple simplistic looking unusual right. architectural shape.
1: Yeah, There's quite a lot of sort of brutalist style up there isn't there?
0: Yeah brutalist is a good word. Yeah and I think the, the, the mixture of the different kind of, of architecture is brutalist but there's also Stuff that clearly has more of a, you know, more traditional heritage as well. Mm. Uh, and it's all just kind of packed in together into a small space. So that was interesting. What else?
1: As for the event itself, mm. yes, it was it was very good. So you were, obviously, PAX East was on. But was your event, was that part of PAX East? Or was that another event that was running alongside it? Or what was the story there?
0: Yeah, so all of the above. It was another event uh-huh. running alongside PAX East, which was specifically run... By oculus uh-huh. to show off new games coming out on the oculus rift
1: i see so it was in like a, a separate venue did people need separate tickets or did their these tickets get them in or how did that work i believe that actually this was a invitation only event
0: for press and media only
1: oh really oh so uh, you didn't have to deal with uh punters yeah it were. punters no so <laughs> yeah there,
0: there were no people coming through the event space that were you know just sort of regular players most people right. uh, were like youtubers or blog writers or mm. people from you know other media and other like a guy from the boston herald was there oh cool yeah so it was uh, from the point of view of an exhibitor it was good because you know everybody that you spoke to is highly significant as far as mm. you know, it sounds a bit sounds a bit cold to say it this way but the, the benefit that they could provide for you actually being there That is that, you know, you show them the game and if they enjoy it, then hopefully they will feel inspired to write about it. Right. And and that could help you with uh, getting more exposure out there. Right. So that was the good thing. But, of course, the negative thing is that when you show games to general players and consumers, Mm -hmm. the reaction is generally much more passionate. Right. And the reaction from media always tends to be very kind of soft you know right <laughs> it's right like uh, yeah this is uh it's really good yeah thanks thanks very much
1: for uh, for the demo thanks very much yet yeah, and uh, we'll yeah, be back in touch yeah. and then that's it i mean it's literally their job so right you know, you know the the gamers and and players that are coming to to see the game they're coming because they really like games and they and they want to sort of experience the la- the latest thing and they're probably using up their weekend to do it mm. but
0: that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So regular players obviously are going to be uh, much more passionate and vocal. And, you know, if they like it, they're going to tell you that they really like it. And if they don't like it, then mm. they'll tell you that too. So that was the negative side, I suppose. One mm. really good thing that I must mention was that the event space that Oculus uh, had for this uh, event that I participated in was fantastic. Oh, yeah. It was not so good because it was a little bit far away from the, the area, like the main convention area where PAXIS was being held, mm-hmm. uh, which was a little bit of an unnecessary detriment for uh, the media who were invited to come because they had to make this trek all the way down there. Right. I believe there was a shuttle bus that was operating. But anyway, the positive of it, though, was that the event space was amazing. So it was in the Innovation and Design Center mm-hmm. uh, in the Seaport District in Boston, it was on the top floor and they'd they'd rented out the whole space of this sort of uh, large event space on the top floor with these big big windows mm. and a top, and a high ceiling and being on the top floor with not many buildings around it on the edge of this sort of seaport district through the whole time we were there there's just this beautiful natural light coming straight through the 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 whole space mm. and because it's VR you can do that <laughs>
1: Right, you don't have to worry about it shining on the monitor. Exactly,
0: exactly. So, for those who don't know, generally game conventions generally they'll be extremely dark. And, you know, basically you have like these sort of down lights illuminating spaces in this very, very dark hall. Mm-hmm. Obviously, because the darker it is, the more contrast there'll be on the monitors and the games look better. Mm-hmm. However, when you're dealing with VR, because people are wearing, you know, HMD head mounted displays, you don't need to worry about light leakage mm-hmm. because it's dark in there anyway so I've I got to tell you like when to to play a VR game and then to pull off the the head mounted display mm. and have all of this nice natural light mm. just feels so good it it it's kind of like it highlights that contrast between this is the virtual world
1: huh. and now I'm back in the real world interesting, and it just it just feels nice yeah've I've, I've never had that experience, and now that I think back to it, you know I've played plenty of VR games that are either in the office or. They were, you know, at an event like Bit Summit, which is in a very dark hall. Right, right. For all the reasons you described. Yeah. So.
0: so it's it's just like rather than taking off this mask and then it being all black except for these really glaring lights, you know, beaming down on you, mm. taking it off and sort of looking out over the over the Seaport District at this beautiful, you know, horizon with these clouds and the sun coming in. It just just felt fantastic. Mm. So. That was really great, uh, and, you know, as a result, sort of standing there for two days was grueling on the legs. Mm. However, you know, I'd much rather be standing in a in an environment like that with this beautiful natural light and this airy feeling mm. uh, rather than a dark, stuffy hole. So that was really good. Oh, great. And can you tell us anything about your game then, now it's all been made public? Yes, I can tell you everything about our game. Uh, so I won't make this too long in case uh, listeners aren't particularly interested in VR games, but... Uh, uh Vitae Backroom has been working on a game called Paper Valley and it is a very simple game which is all about throwing paper planes. Hmm. However, what we've done is a fellow developer who played our game at the event described it as a meditation on a single game mechanic. Hmm. And that is that is a perfect description description and I know that our lead programmer was uh he was extremely happy to have that description of the game because that's been our goal right. the whole time with this that basically we wanted it to be very focused on a single thing that you do that feels really good. Mm. And it started off basically with the aforementioned lead programmer developing a very simple prototype, which was just about throwing paper planes, but just felt really good. Mm. And immediately we latched onto the idea that, you know, paper planes are very good because you can just pick, everybody knows what it is and you pick it up, you hold it. Everybody knows how to use it. Mm. and how to actually throw it. That motion of throwing a paper plane is something that, you know, most people will understand intuitively.
1: Right. And for those who've never used a VR device, that idea fits quite well with VR because the controller that you use is not like a traditional games controller, but a an individual kind of control unit in each hand and you can move your, your actual hand and throw it, right? That's right, yeah. So we
0: basically built the whole game around... This single simple action of throwing a paper plane Mm. And I won't spoil anything for people out there Who are interested in VR games But essentially the idea of the game is that um, By using these paper planes You are rejuvenating this barren land That has been made very, very sick And wasted by uh, a kind of blight Like a plant disease Mm. Uh, And basically it's it's a fantasy world And you go through rejuvenating the world gradually By using these paper planes We came across that idea simply because, you know, there was a moment when the paper plane missed and it hit the ground and we thought, well, what should happen there? Right. Well, how about a plant grows because it's paper?
1: Oh, I see. Okay,
0: so if you miss miss and a plant grows, what happens when you hit? Well, how about, you know, the whole area becomes lush with green? Well, Mm. if it's going to become lush with green, that therefore implies that it,
1: it wasn't was before. not
0: green to begin with right yeah and w- why is that
1: it's a lovely lovely sort of image i think you've released a trailer right yeah yeah and i think i was watching that and uh just to see all the sort of the color burst out uh, right it's a, it's a really nice sort of visual style it's yeah. got going for think. um but the, the last thing
0: uh, to say about the game itself um is that there's also a, a deeper more philosophical side to it too mm. it's indirectly deals with ideas of rejuvenation and sacrifice hmm. and health, health and sickness and, you know, an idea that these things are intertwined and, um, you know, you, you can't really have sickness without health as you can't have health without sickness. Hmm. Just this idea of... Uh, so we don't, um, you know, we very much admire the work of a certain game company called that game company mm-hmm. which is an excellent name <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that that game company does mm-hmm. very very well is that they never really force their storyline too heavily onto the player right if you want to enjoy the storyline it's there for you mm-hmm. uh, but if you don't want to and you just want to play it as a fun arcade game you can do that too mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that we aspired to achieve with uh, this game as well we're kind of using the benefit that um storytelling in vr is very very complicated because it's you know the the standard tools the commonly found tools for storytelling in games such as you know text that you read or cut scenes which are Mm. that's a term for basically like a a small snippet of a game that plays out more or less like a movie that you just watch
1: right and very often you'll sort of be taken out of your character to some extent taken out of control so you can kind of get this almost overhead narrative view that's right of the scene for the length of that cut scene and then you sort of jump back in right so all of these things are
0: more or less uh i wouldn't say impossible but they're, they're not really recommendable in a vr game right i.e to have like a, a lot of text that you've got to read reading text in vr is not that comfortable mm-hmm. and the other thing is is a cut scene where you are suddenly not in control of what you're looking at
1: oh yeah that
0: can that can also result in um you know just not very comfortable feeling Mm. so we're sort of taking advantage of the fact that storytelling in vr is complicated so we've basically um taken the approach of having this narrative there if you want to enjoy it but if you just want to enjoy throwing paper planes at targets you can do that too
1: Mm. cool
0: yeah so, one last thing to just say, um, probably one of the most precious moments of this event mm-hmm. was having Paper Valley, having our demo played by two, it was actually three people, probably in their late 60s. Oh, wow. Or early 70s. Mm-hmm. And these people were brought along by invitees, like visitors to the to the event space. Mm-hmm. Um And they were very nervous, Mm -hmm. and they would say, "No, you know, don't really. I've never really played games. Like the last game I played was Pong," (laughs) and and I'd I'd sort of give them a very approving nod because that's uh, that's that's important history right there. Right. But you know, they'd say, "I don't really play VR uh, games at all, and I'm kind of nervous about this whole VR thing." But my son said I should give it a try, so you know. Mm. And I'm happy to say that uh, the the real touching moment was just seeing our game become so easy for people who had never tried VR before and who'd never really played games that much before. Mm-hmm. And the reason was interesting. It was because they interacted with the game like it was real. Right. Not like
1: it's some game mechanic where you grab it. With right, the they weren't sort of searching for the mechanic. And, and I think that is a sort of thing that we do subconsciously. People who've played games their whole lives is immediately try and figure out how how it works under the hood and how we can take advantage of that right? exactly. like with Wii tennis everyone immediately realized that you can just sit down on your sofa and flick your wrist right and it's the same as doing a wild swing with the Wii remote <laughs> right right
0: right so yeah these um people would basically throw these paper planes like they were actually real paper planes mm. and that's of course how we design it so that right. they feel like real paper planes and so compared to some of the more experienced uh, VR media people who play VR games all day every day mm. that they're working these people got the, the whole mechanics of throwing and hitting targets relatively relatively quickly and it was just really impressive to see and then of course once they once the game the demo finishes it was about 10 15 minutes long mm. they would you know we'd help them take the head mounted display off and basically <laughs> you know they would spend the next 15 20 minutes telling me about their their what they thought of the experience and hearing that from somebody who's not only not a game consumer mm-hmm. uh, also not only not some uh, somebody who's never really had much experience in VR before mm. but somebody with that kind of life experience and that kind of appreciation of subtlety and all the things that come with um, you know advanced age you know appreciation of artistic beauty and subtlety and also an eagerness to understand well, what was involved in making this how did you come up with this mm. you know how does it work all of all of that like spending the next sort of 20 minutes talking to these people about uh, these kinds of questions and their, their reactions and feelings was just really precious so mm. yeah that was probably the, oh, great. The, the best moment of the event for me
1: awesome so when is this game coming out
0: it is coming out uh, on the 19th so I think when our podcast goes out,
1: uh, it will already be out. It'll already be out. Oh, I see. Yeah, because we're recording this a little bit early because I'm, I'm going to be away. Right. Uh, so it'll al- so by the time this podcast is out, it'll al- already be out. Yep. Obviously, everyone uh, will listen to this and immediately want to rush out and buy it. Obviously. So where can they go? What can they do? Yeah. So it is an Oculus Rift game. Mm-hmm.
0: It is exclusive on the Oculus Rift. We are. Uh, You know, if things go well in future, it will be great to have the opportunity to consider other platforms as well. But for the moment, it is Mm -hmm. exclusive on Oculus Rift, which means if you have an Oculus Rift, you can get it on the Oculus Store, Mm -hmm. uh, which you use the Oculus Store app to access, obviously. Right. And if you don't have an Oculus Rift, then you should get one.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to playing it for sure. Oh and how much does it cost? We should probably mention that as well. Yeah,
0: it's going to cost 19.99 in the states. Uh $19.99 that is, not $1,999. Right. <laughs> Although you're free to pay that much for it if you really want. Um <laughs> uh, yes, $19.99. And uh, it's a worldwide release though, right? Yes, that's right. So uh Yeah. It's um it's a worldwide release, but yes, uh, $19.99. So please Nin-
1: 1999, April 19th. 19s all around. Don't forget the 20% tip. I, d- I don't know if the Oculus Store has <laughs> tipping. <laughs> yeah, so that's that. Cool.
0: Now, I wanted to just check in with you about some movies because I watched four movies uh, on the way to Boston. Ah, oh,
1: yes. You said you were looking forward to, to watching something on the flight.
0: Yes. I'll just run over the movies that I watched and then I want to uh-huh. know if you've seen any of these and if we can uh, have a little bit of a chat about these. Okay. So the four movies that I watched, I'll list them in reverse order. I watched Atomic Blonde, mm-hmm. which is uh, basically a, a, an action movie. Yep. I watched Downsizing. Not familiar with that one. Okay, that is a uh, it's a science fiction movie essentially, but it's like an it's a, an kind of like a human drama slash science fiction movie. Hmm. I watched Straight Outta Compton, mm-hmm. which is like a, a documentary style movie uh, all about uh, hip hop culture and uh, NWA in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I watched Blade Runner 2049. Uh ah so Which we all
1: know what that is. Yes. Have you seen any of these? (laughs) So, well, I've seen Blade Runner 2049, Mm -hmm. and that's it. I really wanted to see Atomic Blonde when it was at the cinema, but I missed it, so I haven't seen that, Mm. and I haven't seen either of the others either. Okay.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Blade Runner for a bit, but I I just wanted to mention mention Downsizing. So, Downsizing stars uh, Matt Damon, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's very good. It's... Actually listed, I just typed downsizing into DuckDuckGo, and it's actually listed as a comedy Mm. from this year. Okay. I don't know that I would class it as a comedy. I would class it in this rare and excellent, very, very precious to me genre Mm. of science fiction movies that are not action movies. Ah, Yes. So there's no action in it, mm. but it is essentially a science fiction movie. Mm. And uh you know, just like um 2001: A Space Odyssey, which is kind well there's, there's there's action in that, but it's definitely not an action movie. Right.
1: We I think we spoke about that once before.
0: Yeah. I'm um, I'm all for, you know, expansion of the whole genre of science fiction to include things that aren't always about explosions and, and lasers and spaceships and stuff like that mm-hmm. but yeah so I, I can recommend it downsizing i mean it wasn't it, it wasn't super fantastic but mm-hmm. uh, matt damon's performance as usual you know matt damon's an excellent actor and his performance was excellent as usual so uh can definitely recommend it now blade runner mm-hmm. what's uh what did you think well i guess we can we can probably do this without spoiling it
1: we can well let's see okay We'll put chapter markers in there, so anybody who hasn't seen it, who wants to be sensitive about spoilers, skip this chapter, or possibly even (laughs) skip to the end, because I don't know if we're going to talk about anything after this. (laughs) And we'll see, if it sounds like we're getting into spoiler territory, we'll give you a warning as well. So in case you're not super sensitive and you think, oh, it's probably safe to listen, and then if we veer into dangerous territory, we'll uh, we'll give you a heads up. Mm. Okay, so let's go. Blade Runner, what did you think? What do you think of the soundtrack? First of all, let's get that out of the way. Okay. Um,
0: <laughs> yes, Blade Runner. The well, firstly, the soundtrack. I mean, unfortunately, I was listening on an aeroplane. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So that's a shame. Yeah, <laughs> I had those uh, like um, earbud style, the ones that kind of block out a bit of the, the noise around you, mm-hmm. style uh, headphones on the British Airways flight I was on. So yeah, I got a. I didn't get any bass, but I, I could definitely hear the music. Right. Uh, I definitely want to see it again. Mm-hmm. But yes, the music was very good. Mm. Very, very good So it, it obviously has a, a, a big responsibility on it Because the original Blade Runner music by Vangelis Vangelis, Vangelis I'm not sure, I don't know
1: yeah, One
0: of those Yeah, is iconic in the history of uh, synthesized music mm. And the music for this new movie was very, very good at giving enough hints of the original those things that you kind of want to hear in a Blade Runner movie. Right. But also with its, with a strong character of its own, basically.
1: Right. And it, was, it was Hans Zimmer, wasn't it, who did the music this time?
0: Yes, that's right. Hans Zimmer and Benjamin oh. wallfish who I don't know, but he's British and he's a conductor and pianist. Oh. He's done a few other movies before, but this probably is his most um, notable recent production, together with the uh, very famous Mr. Zimmer. Right. Yes. So I was very, very happy that it didn't just... Kind of, you know, play off all the old themes of those big, big uh, supersaw brass right. Yamaha CS eighty synths from the original one. Mm. Um, but uh, it had that, but it it um, definitely had its own character, which was really great. Mm. Now, there's not um, too much that I want to say about the movie, so we probably don't have to worry about spoiling it. But what I do want to say is that I thought it was okay. really, really good. Um, the especially the acting. Mm. <laughs> Like Ryan Ryan Gosling, mm-hmm. who plays uh, the the protagonist in this movie, yeah. was extremely good, and I I have to admit, when I first knowing the original Blade Runner, which is sort of this dark cyberpunk esque William Gibson style, mm-hmm. kind of dirty, rainy. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> a very gritty depiction of the future. When I first saw, mm. uh, I intentionally didn't watch any preview uh, previews of it, right. so I had no idea what it was going to look like. But I had seen posters and pictures. Right. And when I first saw Ryan Gosling, I thought, No, that like he just looks too soft. Right. You know. Right. He doesn't have that kind of gritty, edgy, dirty kind of look that Harrison Ford did in the original. Right. Right. It's a bit like, clean. Yeah. Very clean yeah. and very. Um, yeah, just very, very soft, and, and I just didn't think it was a good fit at all for the movie. hmm After watching it, like, his performance, I, I felt, was just exceptionally good <laughs> mm. at, at sort of capturing uh, – I'm not worried – I suppose we can spoil a few things, but basically capturing the the the, the subtlety and the kind of artificiality, I suppose, of his character. Mm-hmm. That's as much as I'll say about that. But, right. <laughs> you, you know, it's capturing that sort of um, cl- clinical artificiality and a, a very suspicious softness. Yeah. Uh, he, he did that just fantastically well. And, and just like even on an airplane, on a tiny little screen in front of me, I was just watching it, just sort of grinning the whole time and thinking, man, this guy is doing an amazing job, you know, at, at just getting getting that kind of uncomfortable soft, mm. suspicious softness that, that, that he – that he did for the movie in a clinical kind of way but that very uh, also kind of believable and sort of identifiable you can sort of relate to what he's feeling even though it's it's very intentionally kind of artificial mm. so yeah I, I just thought it was just fantastic what did you think of his virtual girlfriend uh good yeah i'm very very beautiful uh, i'm not sure that's what
1: i'm not sure that's what your question was uh, <laughs> not, not what i'm getting at <laughs> no. but yes i suppose she would be yeah so that's that's how they would market them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> um, but
0: yeah, no, all of the like all of the performances I, I felt were, were were just excellent. The casting was was spot on. Like everybody,
1: right? I mean, I I actually meant less the actress and and more just the concept, right? This oh, okay. idea that that he has this sort of virtual, non physical, right, mm. like hologrammatic girlfriend. Mm. It's was, it was kind of a new thing to this to this uh, installation in the series. Right,
0: right, right. right. I mean, I'm. We we talked about my feelings about science fiction movies uh, back when we um, uh, did our Star Wars, mm. uh, the Last Jedi episode. Mm-hmm. But I tend to go into science fiction movies with a very very uncynical open mind, right? And I like to just let it all wash over me and you know, kind of fall into the whole the whole immersion mm. of what it is. Uh, and so I actually thought that yeah, like the idea of a, a holographic partner was was a great extension from the the things that were shown in the first movie mm. you know when you when you extrapolate then well what's going to happen down the line from that world the idea that you know uh, you could purchase for yourself a holographic projection which has which is obviously has artificial intelligence and has a personality and is can give you companionship even though it's just, you know, light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a really yeah, interesting and um enjoyable extension from the from what could be plausible from the first movie's world. Mm. What did you think?
1: Uh yeah, uh, I thought it was an interesting idea. It's obviously got echoes in a couple of other films that have come out recently like Her and I guess to some extent Ex Machina, but that's a bit different. Mm. Ex Machina, by the way, you must see. We should talk about it at some point. I think you would really like it because that's another science fiction movie that is not really an action movie. Okay. So you should make the time to see that at some point. Hmm. But I guess yeah, the the interesting thing to ask about that concept and that character is a bit difficult to do without spoilers, so I'm not really sure whether we should cover it, but... Hmm. I'll dive in, and then we can decide whether to cut it later okay. about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so if we if we don't cut it, then we're getting into spoiler territory, people. So feel free to skip to the next chapter. Okay. Do do you think that she loved him in any sense? Like they they sort of teased that idea of she had given given him this nickname of like not nickname, but she said he should have a proper name that he would be called Joe and all of this. But then later he sort of comes across this kind of essentially an advert for for this product and that advert called him joe as well mm. so it's sort of the question is well is this just the way it's programmed does it always do this or was that a real thing that she sort of felt right
0: i mean that's the that is in itself a, a central theme to the whole blade runner storyline is the idea of right. love between artificial intelligence
1: Right. And the ability for artificial intelligence to feel any sort of emotion. Exactly. Right? Yeah.
0: And so, uh, you know, you ask, do I think that she actually loved him? Mm. Well, you know, being that she is an artificial, she's artificial tel- intelligence, that's sole purpose and programming is designed to provide companionship, mm. then Yes. I guess, from the right. point of view of uh, what she's programmed to do. But what choice did she have? <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, obviously, yeah. So, I mean, the, you could say, yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of uh, – we, we're now sort of dangerously on the edge of talking about what love actually is. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, yeah, the uh, I, I think she did because, again, you know, as the theme has come up, um, for example, in the first movie, the relationship between um, Deckard and uh, – Rachel, mm. uh, Rachel being a um, what do they call it in the first movie? A replicant. Yeah, that's it. Replicant. Yeah. So therefore artificial, uh, and Deckard obviously uh, not being that. Um, probably. Probably that uh, <laughs> that uh, that whole relationship between them, you call that love, but then from her point of view, is that love? Seeing that she's basically a programmed machine. Right. It's the same kind of thing with the this holographic character that right
1: i guess there's a bit of a difference because she wasn't programmed to love decker that wasn't her purpose right she right. she was programmed for a different purpose mm. and grew to love him i guess right whereas the entire purpose of this virtual girlfriend character mm. is is to be a virtual girlfriend right right so does that does that make it any less real? Like, is that? Mm, I think it. I, you know, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think she definitely
0: loves him then to the extent that she's programmed to do so.
1: Does that does that love that she was programmed to have become more real as it becomes associated with their history and his personality? Mm. Like mm. by the end of their time together, you couldn't have swapped her out for right. any other random one of these virtual girlfriends, right? You right. Ha- her memories and their experiences together means something on top of her initial programming, right? right?
0: Yeah. And so I think all of this, yeah, you, you get that sense that uh, there was an interesting thing that came into my mind halfway through, actually towards the end. Mm. It's like, well, that, you know, seeing that she's essentially a purchasable commodity, you know, you, you kind of think to yourself, well, he just buys another one. But, right. you know, you, that's not that simple because she's got all of the stored ex- common experience together with him.
1: Right. Uh, that and and that got destroyed, right? Yeah. Like, they made a whole thing. That's why she said, don't put me in the little portable pen drive thing. Right. <laughs> because it's dangerous. Right. Uh, even though it would give her the freedom, right? Right, exactly. So, yeah, I guess all of this
0: indicates that, I suppose, as far as the kind of love that can be shared between artificial beings,
1: yeah. um, yes. I mean, I guess, in a way, that's possibly an even more interesting question, is, or a more interesting observation, is that a replicant would feel the need to buy one of these virtual girlfriends.
0: Mm. That's right. Yeah.
1: You know, they, f- they feel something lacking that he like, is that, is that the same as the human feeling of loneliness or is that an attempt to become more human or, mm. you know, what drives that desire?
0: That's a, that is a, that is a very fascinating question. I mean, I suppose that, um, the the replicant is programmed to be somewhat considerate and caring and sensitive towards the feelings of others Mm. so if the replicant is designed to have a certain degree of that ability then it's sort of it doesn't seem too much of a stretch to then say that well the replicant could approach themselves that way as well where they view their own feelings with a certain degree of objectivity or subjectivity Mm. meaning that yeah it's not too much it's not implausible that they could have emotions such as loneliness or the desire to have companionship and, you know, to have somebody to share experiences with. I mean, it's interesting that it's very clear when you when that character is introduced that she's designed for, I guess, you know, not so much companionship but more entertainment because, uh, you know, when he comes back and she's got, like, the meal ready for him and uh, her attire changes very quickly depending on how she senses he's feeling.
1: right. And it's done. It's sort of purposefully done in a very '50s style. Like I think they dress her up at first in this very '50s housewife style of clothes, right. which is kind of representative in, in some way. Of, I mean, there, there is a, a bit of a, a sexist background to all of this, right? You, there's probably nothing more objectifying of women than creating objects <laughs> that that simulate being a woman, right? But so you know, they they, they I think they sort of leaned into that by dressing her up in this kind of 50s housewife get up mm. to kind of give it's that same sort of you know nostalgia for that sort of era and that that idea that she really is kind of there to satisfy him it's not right it's not so much of a two-way street mm. although he does show actual emotion towards her
0: mm. Yeah, and there's all of these – I mean, that's the – really, this is the whole central core of, you know, the entire Blade Runner storyline mm. about basically artificial beings feeling things. <laughs> right. You know, and that's, of course, the the very quite legendary ending of uh, the original Blade Runner movie with the Rutger Hauer, ca- Rutger Hauer character. Right. You know, it's a classic line. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe and all that. Right. You know, it's, it's right. the idea that – uh the termination of artificial life is that immoral because they will—they are programmed to to feel things as well and to store experiences and to consider those experiences and that kind of creates feelings and emotions and mm. all of this is just in my mind, uh, you know, evidence why this uh, recent Blade Runner movie is just very, very excellent. <laughs> Mm. Did you enjoy uh, Harrison Ford's appearance in the movie?
1: Uh, I did. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, appropriate, you know. It's set far enough in the future. He has aged, right, as one would. And yeah, I thought it was good. And they didn't. I I came away thinking. I I think I heard some other people saying that they explicitly tossed away any notion that you know in the original film uh, in the in the director's cut of the original Blade Runner uh, not the theatrical release mm. there were sort of extra scenes added in like the unicorn dream and stuff mm. that pushed the idea more that Deckard might be a, a replicant mm. uh, and you know there's certain cuts of the film are very much on the side of yes he is a replicant and there are others that that leave it a bit more ambiguous and others which don't really imply it at all mm. and from what I gather, I'm not, as with Star Wars, I'm not actually, you know, super into Blade Runner. I've seen it a few times, but I'm not like a massive fan. I haven't read a lot of the, the theories about it. Mm. But from what I gather, the big Blade Runner fans hate the idea that Deckard is a replicant. Oh, okay. They think it's stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And that kind of ruins the whole movie for them. So, right. like that, that seems to be like a sort of long-running controversy. And I think I've heard people say that this movie states that he isn't, but I'm not sure if I took that away from it. I felt like it was still ambiguous mm. in my mind. Did you did you pick up on any of that? Or? Yeah,
0: I I agree. Uh, the same as you. Like I don't think I
1: thought they quite skillfully sort of walked that path right. of leaving it ambiguous because I think the fil- I th- I think I suspect that they were on the side that he's not mm. a replicant but I think they managed to make it such that the film would make sense either way right right
0: and that's um I think the the beauty of this film again is that there's so much subtlety mm. and you know that that's reflected in the music it's reflected in the acting it's reflected in mm-hmm. a lot of these complicated concepts that the story Kind of spins out of the uh, original core ideas of the first Blade Runner movie. Mm-hmm. So much subtlety. Compare it to, say, Force Awakens, mm-hmm. Star Wars Episode 7. Mm hmm. And, you know, that's not subtle. Like, that's the, (laughs) it's kind of, (laughs) I mean, of course it's going to be good because it's got all of the things that a Star Wars fan would want to see in a new Star Wars movie. Right. Uh, you know, a familiar storyline. It's got, it's got all the, the, the action. It's got the humor. It's got the, you know, everything that you want to see is there. So of course it's going to be good.
1: I mean, Star Wars isn't particularly subtle.
0: Anyway, True. Right? The original Star yeah. Wars is, is, is not subtle. Well, I mean, uh, Empire Strikes Back is quite subtle, but that's a that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> but yes, uh, with Blade Runner, you know, obviously, uh, sorry, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Mm. It's a brave thing to go into a franchise with this much attention uh, and to treat it very, very carefully and subtly. Mm. It could have been easier to. No, actually, I'm going to just I'm going to just rephrase all of that. It probably would have been a braver thing to do the other way around and to make Blade Runner 2049 a complete ripoff of the first movie.
1: <laughs> I don't know if braver is the word. I mean, I think it would definitely have not gone as well mm, because. But yeah, it would be the obvious
0: thing to do. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah, obvious thing, but brave because the difference, of course, is that Blade Runner has much more of an intellectual. A cerebral side to it right. And say Star Wars which is as we talked about before at least in my opinion space opera right this is this is real kind of thick meaty cerebral science fiction right Blade Runner so therefore it, it only fits that a sequel to the original classic movie it also has an equal equal amounts of the sort of heavy intellectual side that makes you think what does it mean to be artificial what does it mean to have feelings what does it mean to have memory you know There's an interesting thing I just thought of as well. You know, that holographic character, you know, the idea that all of her memory, uh, there's a big spoiler here, but all of her memory and all of her sort of common existence together with the Ryan Gosling character, Mm. Joe or Kay, I think, uh, all of that is stored in this little thing that he's holding, which projects her, Mm. you know, and then that gets uh, ultimately destroyed. Right. And then like all of her memory, all of that common uh experience and all that emotion is lost in an instant yeah like tears in the rain (laughs) (laughs) so uh yes (laughs) there's some subtlety for you (laughs) yeah so um Uh, yeah interesting actually in that uh, wasn't in that scene isn't that the one where they're they're on the like on that dam and there's all the water and it's raining. Uh which scene? The Tears in the Rain scene. No, no. The scene when, when she dies. No, it was before that, wasn't it? It's no, that's before. She yeah.
1: it's the I can't remember the name of the sort of bad guy character, the woman, the, the replicant woman who's oh, yeah. really strong. Right. I don't remember. She she stamps on it when they're at the like Hollywood place with Harrison Ford and all of that. Hmm. And she she was quite an interesting character as well. I mean, she seemed she kind of seemed like the most black and white character in a way, I guess. It felt like something sort of broken her when the blind guy stabbed one of the replicants he'd made, mm. like as soon as they were they were born in those right. quotes. Right. And that that kind of felt like a a sudden a very sudden switch mm. in her you know, she she had been ruthless before, but you know, that was the moment when she went kind of full on evil or out of control mm. or whatever. Right. I don't know if that's supposed to be the case but that, that was kind of the, the way it felt mm. to me
0: yeah uh, that scene uh, has reminded me of the architecture oh ah, yeah i don't know about you but i found the architecture really impressive through the whole movie
1: yeah it was interesting. Uh, an interesting thing about it is uh not just the architecture but the lighting and all that they really played back on the original blade runner right and they went for a lot of the aesthetic of the original blade runner mm. uh, to the extent of having the same logos come up, mm. like Atari, right? which kind of seems like weirdly dated now. Like in the original Blade Runner, those things were chosen because they were very current and, and even futuristic for the time. Right. But now it kind of seemed like a bit of an anachronism to have the Atari logo suddenly show up.
0: Well, that's interesting because the original Blade Runner is set in the year 2019. mm <laughs> which is next actually year. Next, next year, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and this one obviously is 2049. Right. 30 years so we're later. talking 30 years later. Mm. So, yeah, I suppose the, the probably the choice to go with those logos that they had before, like uh, Atari, I think there's a Sony logo in there too, mm. which is in the first one, obviously, too. Right. That choice is probably based on two things. Number one is that, well, it's 30 years in the future. So, yep. You know, I suppose you know you're gonna have a few of those companies still around and still major probably. Mm-hmm. The second thing is probably they also did need to include some kind of uh, you know uh- you can't really call it Easter egg when it's that big and
1: that obvious, but... <laughs> right, right. But yeah, references to the previous sort of fan service, as it were. Fan service, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um,
0: so you need to have some... And effect. it would
1: have been weird if they'd had like current logos, like if they'd had the Apple logo and the Google logo right. and <laughs> right. Facebook logo show up, right? right? That'd, be, that'd just be really, really bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: especially right now you you wouldn't want the uh the Facebook logo coming up right now would you? <laughs> by the way, just uh, on that topic, you are apparently you are joined by what's his full name? Steve Wozniak. Oh, who has uh, yeah, also, I,
1: I vaguely read something about that.
0: Who ha- he's the uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Apple who has also recently very publicly deleted his Facebook account. So,
1: uh Well, he's actually deleted it. I still haven't I'm I've deactivated mine, but I haven't actually pulled the trigger on deleting it i have been off it for i think a month now how do you how do you feel you feeling good (laughs) i i feel literally no (laughs) different for the first couple of days i did muscle memory try and go to facebook Mm. on my phone and then sort of realize it wasn't there and that was a bit weird right like it really does sort of you notice how much of a habit it's become when you find yourself actually physically trying to do it even though you know Mm. that you've you know, I mean, it's a bit like quitting smoking as well, you know, there's if you have smoked for some period of time and then you decide to quit, for quite a while after you quit, you keep on sort of trying to get a packet of cigarettes out of your pocket when you're at a bus stop or right. whatever, <laughs> like just because it's a natural thing to do. And then you realize, oh no, there's no cigarettes in my pocket because I've quit. Right. I've noticed
0: a difference actually. And that is that uh, since you've quit Facebook, you post a lot more on Twitter, which I think is great. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh as as i've made known before i'm i uh i quite like twitter so uh <laughs> i think it's great to. i'm always happy to read uh read stuff from you in twitter so uh now since you've quit so
1: i'm surprised that there isn't an actual difference there because i didn't really post to facebook all that much mm. but anyway i guess if you say it's true it must be so that's right If
0: if Alex says it's true, it must be true. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Okay. So uh, back.
0: Yeah. I mean, just closing up the topic of uh, of uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I definitely want to see it again um, with Mm. with better sound next time. But yeah, my feeling coming off the plane was like, wow. You know, if that if that movie was that impressive, looking on a tiny little screen on a noisy airplane Mm. uh, in a kind of a haze of jet lagged confusion, (laughs) then uh, I really want to see it. Just sort of, you know, regularly because uh, I'm I'm sure it's going to be even more impressive.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'll probably be seeing it again soon because it's out on the Japanese uh, iTunes store now. So Mm. we can watch it. I can watch it with my wife who wanted to watch it Mm. but didn't really want to have to sort of see it through the haze of a foreign language. (laughs) She wanted to get the full experience of, of actually understanding You know, with some films, it doesn't really matter and you can just sit and enjoy it, even if you don't totally follow it. But as you say, with a film like this, it's quite a cerebral experience and you really do want to understand what everyone's saying and be able to sort of consider it Mm. and and think about the the ideas that are coming up. And so she wanted to wait for one with, with subtitles, which we can get now. Absolutely, so. yeah, that's a good idea.
0: Subtitles or dubbed. Now, this might be a movie that would be more enjoyed. I, think, I mean, she's not into dubs in okay. general. Okay. I, think,
1: I, I think subtitles would be better because you want to get the, yeah. The, I mean, I think you can get the feeling of the emotion from the acting. Right. I mean, even if you don't understand the, the language. Yeah, true. Language I mean,
0: time. the one performance that really, uh, really, really, I felt was exceptional was Ryan Gosling's performance. And I think that uh, dubbed... Yeah, you obviously risk the the dubbing actor not doing as good a job as yeah Ryan. Or and either, Japanese
1: dubs, I mean, they're all going to sound like anime characters.
0: That's the, the typical thing: is that a character like Ryan Gosling, who looks like that, yeah, doesn't have, he the actual Ryan Gosling. He doesn't have a terribly deep voice, but usually in the mm-hmm. Japanese dubs, they're like really deep and masculine,
1: right? right. <laughs> and it's like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. like-
0: weirdly sort of cartoonishly macho. Yeah. The advantage of the dub ones generally is that the, the quality of the actual translation tends to be better because they can put more into it. Hmm. Whereas subtitles ones, they're usually strangely brief because they, they obviously they only have a certain amount of characters they can put onto the screen with a certain amount of time.
1: Oh, I see. Oh, really? Yeah, I've never really noticed that before. The funniest thing I've seen in uh, Japanese... So I think they do this in both the subtitles... And they might even do this in the dub, which would probably be even funnier, of uh James Bond. Mm. Have you seen James Bond in Japanese? <laughs> no, I haven't. It uh, sounds good though. You 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 really should. <laughs> whenever he talks to, it's gotta be the modern James Bond with the uh, uh, Judy Dentures, M. Right. Whenever he <laughs> whenever he talks to M, he calls her mom. Right. 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 Somebody at some point. In Japan, must have misunderstood this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so it's translated as okasa. Oh no, no, but that's <laughs> for the for the entire and and I guess they just kept going with it now, and it's just what he says. So for the, for all the James Bond movies, he's calling her mum, like his mother, right? But that that's
0: that no, that's that's a tough thing though, because that is very British, because he's he's not
1: saying ma'am, he's saying mum, right? No, he's no, he's saying mom, isn't madam with the d miss oh out. really it's a yeah it's a, it's not a wow i'm I'm shocked it's not mum it's not it's not like your mother it's it's a form of address
0: well, there you go so you can you can lump me in together with those translators who did that work because <laughs> cause I thought that he's actually saying mum as in like mother and I thought oh that's re- very i actually felt that that was like <laughs> so weird like kind of fascinating that he would
1: call his boss mum because it's kind that of that would be fascinating that would that that would say all sorts of very strange and unusual things about the british yeah because
0: that's uh oh i'm, I'm wow i'm shocked because <laughs> <laughs> yeah i actually thought it. he was saying mum <sighs> and then and for some reason i'm trying to think why that wasn't strange to me did
1: you not and was it not weird that in the era before judy dench he never called him daddy that, <laughs> that would be kind of a bit creepy wouldn't it <laughs> that would, I think calling her
0: mum is a bit creepy there's, there's, I think there's, I'm trying to think of a reason there's a reason why when I saw that with the Daniel Craig movies and I thought um, it didn't seem strange to me uh-huh. that he would call her mum and I'm trying to I'm trying to remember why it might be something from my upbringing where like a very important lady mm. in an stash- establishment kind of like a a term of endearment essentially but it's Kind of like a to call her mum as in mother, as if like she's the mother of a whole bunch of children doing stuff.
1: Mm. Can't say I've ever encountered that in English. Okay. I've heard of that in like, you know, the the woman who owns a bar right. in Japan might be referred to as okasan. Some kind of bar. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or mama or whatever. Right, <laughs> like right. some sort of. But I've never, I don't, I don't think I've ever encountered that. Well, there you go. Then maybe that's... English. Mm. If you, if listeners have ever referred to their superior as mum. <laughs> <laughs> or daddy. or, or, or daddy. Don't tell us what your
0: job is. <laughs> Let us, yeah. Just be very, tread carefully. <laughs>